Hello, and welcome to Decipher This, a podcast about music and technology from Ensemble Decipher. I'm Joey Bohegan. I'm Nilofara Nurbachs. And we're here today with Daria Semigen. We're really excited to be talking with Daria. She's a former teacher of ours and a mentor to our many of the members of Ensemble Decipher. So Daria Semigen's chamber orchestral vocal and electronic music with dance and film tends toward the experimental. Her first score for instruments and music concrete tape is from 1965, followed by a tour de force electronic music works she crafted with classical analog studio techniques. She is renowned as one of the pioneers of electronic music, and her work has been featured in articles, books, and as the subject of an international seminar at King's College, University of London. Welcome to the podcast, Aria. Thank you very much. Good to be here with you and be you. <laughs> Thank you, Daria. Well, we actually wanted to start the segment um, with a very interesting concept that you mentioned in one of our email threads uh, this week. You mentioned something called discontinuous listening, um, which you describe as momentarily taking sounds out of context so they stand outside of continuity and uh, their strong contextual influence rather than uh, be buried or masked by continuity. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about um, what you think of as listening versus hearing? Are, are those different? And um, can you identify a few different ways of listening for us? Well, it's listening with intent to glean aspects of sound behavior and be affected as a listener by what one hears, meaning being a reactive listener. So the way you just described it pretty much describes some of this process where instead we seem to tend to want, desire some kind of continuity in time because well, the next question, why? That makes us comfortable. Rather than having constant discontinuity or interruptions. So that is a kind of loosely describing it uh, subjectively, a kind of comfort zone listening where we don't like to be interrupted. <laughs> But that means we are creating perhaps a continuity, which is a mood of some kind of expression in continuity that we become accustomed to. And being accustomed is a different situation of expectations, let's say, for listening. And perhaps it is a more relaxing into the longer comfort aspects of a sonic experience of an event. I intentionally, with that type of listening, which is a sort of exercise, try to break up continuity so I can put in a different situation to pay attention to. So I actually, I started doing this with sounds on tape and I would 
play momentarily, literally a few seconds and stop and then another second or a few more seconds so that I could experience sounds not reading as a continuity as if we're reading a book, you know, and getting into the meaning of a paragraph. So many things happen psychologically that are individual related, idiosyncratic, a favorite word, that are actually creating these comfort aspects, not to be totally discomforted, but that's basically what I do. And the trying to be less uh, breaking up the comfort levels, breaking up continuity, breaking up another thing that is expectations and the sorts of lack of attention that happens when we are listening to sounds that are being actually, their meaning is being formed by the context. So we're not observing these sounds, meaning appreciating them for themselves, for what they are, or understanding what they could be in other contexts. So with my electronic pieces, I often, in a more pronounced way, in certain fragments of pieces, will take sounds that I have found, discovered from this continuous listening exercises that I do in order to find sounds and then use their aspects in different contexts amongst other sounds that have nothing to do with these <laughs> sounds. So unless I go hunting in a sound forest and then focusing on individual uh, sights, sounds, then these recognitions of sounds that are more interesting, less interesting, something in between, between the extremes of not interesting and fascinating or striking. This kind of way of working for me reveals possibilities of using sounds in other contexts rather than assuming things about sounds or thinking too much. <laughs> so part of the listening is definitely this kind of spontaneous reaction to the influence of individual sounds rather than sounds within constant continuity. Thank you so much. Yeah, I also love how you compare an experimental environment with like a forest because you're just so much more alert and it's it's a completely different way of listening. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's really inspiring. Thank you, Daria. Oh, what my encounter with that experience that you set up artificially, let's say, because you have to determine the aspects of that little listening experiment. And there are other listening experiments one can do within the sound choices you may be working in 
where you try to find ways through listening to discover something about aspects of sounds by themselves and in relation to each other. So that really is also always doing comparative listening as you're working in shaping a piece. In working in the studio, if it's an abstract art piece, as I can describe it, that is not dependent all the time on some pre-made structure of such as perhaps a conventional way of setting poetry to be intelligible in some ways, as opposed to being more abstract and perhaps cubist and other attributes. And there's all kinds of cubism. And that brings me to also mention how important it is for creative artists in any area to be familiar with different thinking especially from the end of the uh, 1800s and on, all of these amazing art movements that are not relying only on the old ways or the typical ways. I shouldn't call them old ways. They're conventional ways of working that people uh, we're used to in Western culture are still being used. <laughs> Not everything is experimental or abstract or abstract in different degrees of extreme, uh, which is, of course, an impression based on people's individual art experiences, music experiences, etc. So I think it's very instructive to understand different art movements and also appreciate something like precisionism, the quality of working, even though that's not the way you might be working in a piece or not all the time. You appreciate the degree of attention is what you appreciate that the artist has put into aspects of their process and also the outcome of the process. And I realize something that should be very obvious is that typically we do not, as the receivers of the outcome of an art process, of, we don't really know about the process. We don't know the narrative of the process, which is interesting that we only are, let's say, observing and being gifted by the makers of this experience. We only know the outcome and the results and can only guess about a lot of the process. And even if we have people purportedly describing the process, it still is not the same thing. And we try at least to imagine what this scenario might have been like and make really our own narrative <laughs> from imagining and getting information of different kinds about it. So I, I find that kind of connection 
is interesting and one can have that of course with uh, music and art and dance and all aspects of communication that we can experience out there so we are communicating with now we're communicating with the past and i find that is very intriguing and the fact that as perceivers as listeners we are not perceiving everything absolutely the same way because simply being alive, our entire physical system, which influences our mind, we're not separated from our brain by fantasizing that our thinking is somewhere else. <laughs> it's, it's within us and our entire endocrine system is constantly churning as we are living moment to moment. So we're not the same person physically and possibly mentally from moment to moment. Therefore, when we listen to something in different moments, we are experiencing it not 100% exactly the same as we did yesterday. In fact, we have to make an effort to pull ourselves together to focus on what it was like to be yesterday listening. So I find that also a challenge if I need to do certain kinds of things in the process of working on creative things as a listener viewer and someone who's aware of being influenced by uh, other aspects of life. Oh, that's uh, actually a great transition to what our next question was, which was to ask you about, uh, you talked about the need for flexibility in listening and composing, as you just mentioned, the variation in your experience of sound from day to day, but also the need to embrace your intuitive reactions when you're composing. So we wanted to ask how that outlook has shaped the way you compose, but maybe also the way that you teach when you're working with students in terms of embracing intuition and being flexible with your sounds? Um, I think that, again, it's an aspect of awareness, whether someone welcomes that as part of the mix of communicating with one's ideas and also communicating with people and in let's say classroom teaching one is revealing certain things that are sharing so it's an aspect of sharing and i think one's intuitive self very much is a part of that whether we call it that situation and enumerate it among things that are happening in our response and our response in communicating with others, which is also a distractionary <laughs> uh, response that is modified by the context that we are in. So I think it's interesting that we are having these modifications 
our intuition is very much involved and are sensing what is happening in connections rather. And of course, it depends on one's percentages of perceiving different aspects and what happens with our imagination during the time of communication and interaction. So one might go into uh, people who are have words from psychology, may uh, interpret various situations in their way and apply jargon, but we have to adapt its adaptation for the purpose of communication in classrooms, for example, no matter what happened on your way in traffic jams or whatever degrees of debacles on your way to teaching or performing, etc., you have to create a situation for communication at a lesson with students or a student or focus on the purpose of your interaction and I think not block out certain aspects that may be important as a communication whether they are more positive or negative to make everything absolutely make nice I think one should tend more towards make real <laughs> in situations, at least to admit certain realities rather than uh, escaping into only acting, where we go into roles <laughs> which are part of comfort level making with setting up a teaching scenario with a classroom group that one sees every week or lesson. So it's an interesting scenario. But I think it's also important for everybody to realize they are not the same person from moment to moment as a viewer listener and that our defense mechanisms come into play all the time are art forms that are very intense are coming from you know our ready defense mechanisms such as hearing and seeing so when you're back at the forest scenario you are looking and listening as your first line of attention to see what's happening and use these two defense mechanisms for which we have very elaborate art making. My certainly electronic music work in a very direct way is related heavily to comparative listening. And it's far less abstract as an experience than making a score for instruments, for example, where I'm also having to create symbols language called scores, <laughs> uh, and sometimes having to design the visual symbols 
out of necessity in order to communicate visually with uh, interpreters who are experienced performers and even composers in order to create an experience. So what I'm doing is something typically with a purpose, but the purpose in some of my art making, music making, has to do also with finding an outcome. Because at some point, an event experience has an ending, although we have situations set up by composers, notably John Cage, to purportedly continue an experience, but it partly it's a wishful thinking and partly it's creating a narrative continuity. So to some degrees, all of that is interpretable, all these efforts. We really wanted to ask generally about gesture and music and how you think about that, but we were listening to uh, your collaborations with dancers and specifically the piece Arc. Um, so could you tell us a bit about how you think of gesture and uh, either in Arc or in any other pieces uh, about working with dancers? Oh, well, Arc is a highly structured piece and it's based on a set of graph sheets that uh, the choreographer very specifically designed and a form that was an ABCBA form in uh, the time structure. So, and also in the flow of events, let's say tempo changes. So there were absolutely metronome markings the A sections had their own markings and they were opposite each other in this time event called this dance. And then the B sections in ABCBA had a different speedier tempo and the C section in the middle um, had the fastest tempo. And the choreographer was not interested in mood. So she didn't talk about it. I had no idea. And everything was specified. Each beat of this, of, in phrases, which were, had 13 beats, 11 beats, we're not talking about typical uh, four beats per measure type layout at all. So there would be 13 beats, seven beats, five beats, three beats, three beats, and then suddenly 21 beats. And when I went to a rehearsal, the dancers had memorized all their moves, which were complex. And there were something like seven or eight dancers involved in this and all sorts of organizing of mini groups of dancers in different stage locations. So what I'm describing is more toward complexity. This was a complex choreography. So this was extremely structured. This was not a situation typically that happens in choreography 
design, which is they choose the music, then they make a choreography on the music. Not that at all. And of course, I, I didn't know at that point anything about how choreography is made. I had not seen a classical ballet except maybe on television as a kid. And I was curious about doing this. And apparently other composers did not want to do this after they saw these big graph paper sheets for each section of this ABCBA choreography structure. So I go to a rehearsal and I didn't even think about what I'd be, uh, you know, what am I going to encounter? It didn't occur to me, okay, there's not going to be any music <laughs> to, to this rehearsal. So I just let it, uh, let things happen without preconceiving anything. And that is usually my approach before I walk into an electronic music studio to do a abstract piece that is unrelated to any other factors other than my getting ideas and pursuing them best ways possible through discovering what those ways would be for that piece or that fragment or that section. So I witnessed, I saw the choreography and took some notes and asked the choreographer, well, do you have any moods in mind? <laughs> and um, the choreographer said, no. That is, that is a very cool story. And uh, um, I, I love how the process is like totally uh, reversed. <laughs> In this case, that's really interesting. I'm actually going to, since you mentioned design, I'm going to take a philosophical tangent here. Um, uh, you know, in, in our classroom, we always mentioned um, we're surrounded by art and specifically design. Everything around us is design and it involves art. And so I was just wondering, why do you think then people just assume that art is not really a necessity to our society? And why are they so afraid of art? Part of it in society is hype of deriding arts for different political reasons. I saw that myself as someone who was judging certain awards in Washington, D.C., and I'd fly there from New York several times a year, and I would be aware of the propaganda and aware of the constant fear of the imagination of artists because to make art takes a certain intelligence and information and adventurous thinking. And people with imagination who also have the determination to make something in art are seen as a danger. Simply imagination is dangerous. So with less education and with the fostering of more and more ignorance 
the powers that be in charge politically and uh, behind the scenes through big force of the power of money are able to twist things around their way to maintain corruption, which is a uh, the usual old story about wanting and grabbing power. It's not about sharing <laughs> power or wealth or spreading prosperity, despite the propaganda. So the greed factor is a serious problem, greed and power, and twisting around people's minds through fear. So fear and threats are just wonderful tools. Art isn't always doing that. <laughs> we uh, package uh, fear and threats in thrillers that are fantasies of some kind that we then vicariously experience with our body-mind combination and imagination. So. People need more information about art and places to enjoy art and the fact that they can do it themselves. It is not, as it were, rocket science all the time, and it's not unavailable. It is an experience, and whatever you experience at that time is valid for you. I often will tell my students what it was like for me when I thought I couldn't stand watching ballet. I didn't know anything to look for, to appreciate, and I couldn't tell something bad or good. So I had to go through the experience of not going necessarily to a course or anything, but being able to observe and pick up information and look things up. And this was very useful for me in teaching later on to understand and to share what it can be like to let go of assumptions about something and then pursue what one notices is interesting and why these things exist and what to look for. So hints to uh, vernacular listener viewers are actually very useful. And I tell them, you are having a valid experience for that time that you are experiencing this. Be your own curiosity, if you don't mind, and uh, trust your reactions at that time. And we are always a different experiencer from one year to the next, and that's as it should be. We shouldn't be so shocked that we were amazed by certain experiences from five years ago that today are kind of run of the mill for us. That's what can happen. Or we can cherish things even more than we experienced five years ago because we find more things to value and appreciate about them. So it doesn't have to be all 
It's not like a frozen grading system of some sort in being a fewer listener. Yeah, that's great. Again, it's all going back to how we're listening, different ways of listening. So to finish up, we wanted to talk a little bit about the piece of yours that we'll be doing at our concert at Stony Brook in a couple weeks. Nilu and Rob have been working on a, a new version of your piece, Vignette, for piano. So could you tell us a bit about the piano piece, and then maybe Nilu can talk about what her and Rob have been working on with that? Well, Vignette was a piece for piano that was commissioned by the Library of Congress, one of their funds called the McKim Funds, and it was the first time they would get a piece composed by a woman as part of their offerings uh, from the fund. And so it was intended for performance by the Kennedy Center Chamber Players Music Series of Concerts and also appeared in a program of the Juilliard Spring Quartet as part of their varied program, including pianists and, and string players. And this was for violin and piano. I found myself thinking about making a piece very drawn to the differences between sound clusters as changes of intensity, you know, comparative listening to different sound clusters in an electronic music studio setting. <laughs> so I wanted to work with degrees of intensity and use uh, comparative listening through some repetition and also create different sorts of uh, registral atmospheres and densities in pointed ways, meaning deliberate ways. So I rummaged around the piano and came up with some sounds and did a lot of comparative listening. I really was engaging in listening the way to different fragments of music I was making in a way with this piano instrument that was similar to the way I might be working in an electronic music studio. So part of my creating sounds and choosing process had a lot to do with that studio experience. And therefore the piece is structured uh, the way it is to make different fragments of experience in this continuity. So there are contrasts and similarities going on. There's also towards past the middle uh, somewhere starts a more conventional pianistic section, which is uh, flashy because it's a gestural satisfaction that is going on there to play something like that and that is very effective. And some of the performance of this more rapid, louder, and flashier section has to do with using the palms of your hands. So, and this is similar <laughs> to studio work where one is using, let's say, slices of bands of noise sounds or complex slices of 
bands of complex pile-up pitch sounds, which no longer are paid attention to only as pitch, but as expression events, like parts of sculptural marble that you can make in arrangements, let's say different heights. So working with a coarser, rougher kind of expression was very interesting to me on the piano that I had since childhood associated only with pitch. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say, um, first of all, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous piece, and uh, um, I am always afraid of the flashy section. <laughs> and I, um, you know, uh, going back to Joe's question, we've been experimenting with um, kind of expanding a segment and again, like creating a new environment for the sound from that piece. And as you, as you told us about discontinuous listening, trying to um, extract a sound, a gesture, and like explore and expand it more into an event. 
and uh, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Daria. Well, thank you for performing a number of times okay. wonderfully <laughs> and with a lot of pizzazz um, and dazzle is part of that uh, spirit of the virtuoso gesture in that piece where you kind of let it rip and it's a satisfying highlight to the piece which has different contrasts of experiences in it so that you play beautifully delicate areas as well as have the grit and force and spirit to perform and deliver to audience of the really dazzling sections. We cannot wait to uh, premiere this new version. <laughs> well, neither can I. <laughs> I can, uh, as a listener, of course, I don't know right now the final outcome. But am I worried about it? No, I look forward to the experience of this new version that is transformed. Great. Well, thank you so much, Daria, for talking with us today. We'll be performing this new version of Daria's vignette on November 8th at Stony Brook University, and that'll be the first concert of our Stony Pack tour around New York State. So if you're in the area, we'd love to see you there. But that's all for now. Thanks, Thanks Daria. very much. You thank you so much, Daria. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Decipher This. Your hosts today were me, Joy Bohigian, and Nilfar Nubach. The episode was edited and produced by me, Joy Bohigian. Mm-hmm.